Good morning. We, uh, we are very near the end of John's gospel, uh, approaching the crucifixion. And this morning we are going to talk about the trial of Jesus. Um, this is something that, you know, oftentimes I think we kind of gloss over. It's, it's in some gospels, a fairly small portion of the writer's reflection. In John's gospel, however, it's the bulk of chapter 18. And nestled within it is a, another little story that happens, a glimpse into the life of one of the disciples. Uh, it's interesting because it seems as though if you're talking about the trial of Jesus, you wouldn't want any interruptions. But John, John shifts focus a number of times. He transitions between the trial of Jesus and what this morning I want to call the trial of Peter. Sometimes we look at this and we, we label it the denial of Peter, and that's not a bad name for it because certainly Jesus says that Peter is going to deny him three times. But the interesting thing to me about it is I think John has placed this story about Peter in the midst of the trial of Jesus rather than addressing it as sort of a standalone event, specifically because he wants us to see the way that these two men handle interrogation handle questioning, what their responses are, and what it reveals about them in these moments uh, when they respond. And so I want to start by looking specifically at Peter's little bits and pieces here. John 18, verse 15 through 18 says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. Now we think this disciple was probably John, uh, partly because John seems to know the name of the, uh, the servant of the high priest who gets his ear cut off. We're pretty sure that John uh, had an intimate understanding of what was happening within the, the high priest's uh, chambers and who he was and what was going on. Uh, and, and so this other disciple oftentimes uh, is thought to be John. Since that disciple was known to the high priest... He entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. This phrase was known to the high priest. It could mean that they knew one another, but I think what it actually means is that the high priest knew this was one of Jesus' disciples, probably because he knew him personally, but he knew that this was a disciple of Jesus. There's no hiding it. John is not going to be able to uh, kind of shut himself away and pretend as though he doesn't know who Jesus is. And so he, he goes into the high priest's courtyard and nobody stops him because everybody knows he's associated with Jesus. Peter, on the other hand, doesn't boldly walk into the high priest's room. Instead, he stands outside. But the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. I wonder, you know, sometimes I read this and I think maybe that they stopped Peter at the, the door, but it, it doesn't seem like that's so much the case. It seems as though Peter stopped short and John has to come back out and, hey, you know, are you going to come in here with me? Am I going to be alone in this? Is, is this an area that, like, you're not willing to go to? And Peter seems to be hesitant to go into this courtyard. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? 
And he said, I am not. Which seems strange because uh, if, if they let John in because he's known to the high priest or he's known to be associated with Jesus, a good way to keep from having to go into the courtyard would be Peter's denial here. Well, you know, maybe if I tell her I'm not one of the disciples, then I don't have to go in there. But John knows me. This is kind of inconvenient. I, I, I'm not one of his disciples. I'm, I know this guy, but I don't know the one you're trying. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Notice that Peter physically distances himself. He associates himself not with Jesus and this other disciple, but he associates himself with those who are warming themselves around the fire, finding comfort for themselves. They're, they're in a position to be uh, maybe a little bit relaxed about this whole situation. The, the trial is something that's happening over there, and I am over here, and there's distance between us. Even in the way that he positions himself in the courtyard, there is a denial on Peter's part. He stays outside of the courtyard initially. When he's brought into the courtyard, he, he denies association with Jesus, and then he literally distances himself from the events that are happening as Jesus is being questioned. Now Simon Peter was standing, this is later, standing and warming himself. So they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. Now think about this. Uh, you're, you're with your cousin, maybe part of an angry mob, right? Going to arrest Jesus. And your cousin is, is there with you. And you are all in the process of taking this man. And a guy pulls a sword and hacks your, your cousin's ear off. Are you going to forget that face particularly quickly? He recognizes him. He says, you, you were there, Right? Like, I'm not mistaken. I think you might be the guy that chopped my, my cousin's ear off. And Peter denies it. These are not particularly intensive questions that he's asked. They're not hard questions to answer in, in the truthful sense, right? There, there is a true answer and there is a false answer that Peter can give to these questions. They're very simple, very straightforward. He's not being asked philosophical things. He's not being asked to reveal the secrets of the universe. He's being asked, are you a disciple of Jesus? Do you know him? Weren't you in the garden with him? Peter is tremendously, not just hesitant to answer these questions, he is tremendously forceful in his denial of Jesus, quick with the response. His body language, his personal positioning, everything he does is a denial of the truth that he's lived for three years. And then we encounter Jesus. Of course, uh, the, the author of John, John, begins with the, uh, the, the look at Jesus going into uh, the house of Annas, the, the uh, father-in-law of the high priest Caiaphas. 
And as he's there, we are kind of given this impression that there will be some significant questioning happening, and, uh, and we want to know how Jesus will respond to this. And so they start to ask Jesus questions, and Jesus answers them in this way. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, it sounds like Jesus is kind of avoiding the question that they might be asking him. Uh, Look, I don't need to give you an answer because anyone else can bear witness. But the truth is, an individual wasn't actually supposed to bear witness about themselves. In Israel, at this time, you gathered a crowd of witnesses. You had witnesses that would testify to what you had done or said. In fact, you weren't necessarily allowed to represent yourself in your own trial. And so they're actually kind of creating a mistrial situation in some way here. They're asking Jesus directly, what do you say about yourself? Who are you? What is, what is going on here? And Jesus has spent his entire ministry doing this. We've made it very clear as we've studied through the Gospel of John that Jesus doesn't hide his identity from people. Now, he's quick to, to flee them when they want to make him king. He's definitely uh, apprehensive about their intentions toward him. But Jesus is regularly using language to describe himself as the Messiah, as the Son of Man, who is the one that Daniel saw in the throne room of heaven. He uses the phrase, the good shepherd, to describe himself. He equates himself with the Father. He uses the phrase, I am over and over and over in the public square where everyone could hear him and everyone could witness what he was doing and saying, Jesus is unashamedly revealing his identity. And it's here on trial that he says, where are the people that I've spoken to? Ask one of them what I've said. That's how our system works. Those who have heard my voice can tell you what I've said. Those who were in the synagogues and the temple know what my claims are about me. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So, I want you to think about what just happened here. Where is Jesus being sent? He's being sent by Annas to the high priest. So we've already been told that he's not the high priest here at the end of the verse, but the soldier identifies this man as the high priest. Now, this soldier would not actually be a Jewish individual. This is a Roman soldier. So he doesn't actually know that he's talking about the high priest or not talking about the high priest. 
He's misrepresenting the truth. Is that how you speak to the high priest? Well, this man isn't even the high priest. What right does he have to be asking me these questions? He's not the high priest. The whole trial is unraveling here. Where is the authority in this room to be asking these questions? The manner in which the questions are asked is entirely wrong. The person they are asking about the identity of Jesus, although the person who can provide the most accurate description of him, is not the one they're supposed to be asking. And the man who is asking the questions is not the man who should be asking the questions. But Jesus is then sent on to the high priest. And over the course of the evening, Jesus is shuffled around multiple times. And everyone that has a dialogue with him kind of plays the same game. In fact, uh, in the end, he's taken to Pilate. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, this is the most direct question Jesus has given all evening, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Are you asking this question because someone has led you to ask this question, or do you, do you really want to know who I am? What's the loaded reasoning behind your intent here? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And then in what seems to be a very strange response, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. We'll continue Jesus' thought here in just a moment. This strange interchange between Pilate and Jesus is really the interchange of two completely different mindsets. Pilate is a concrete thinker here. He knows that there are kings and there are insurrectionists. And I think what, what Pilate is really asking when he says, are you the king of the Jews, is do you plan to foment rebellion against my king? I'm not a Jew. I don't care what your little games are over here and, and all the things that happen down here. Uh, it, Pilate is intimately familiar with this man named Herod, uh, who is, in his own mind, the king of the Jews. Pilate is intimately familiar with the workings of Palestine, the, the, the land that has been conquered by Rome and renamed because uh, it's, it's, it's the way that they've done things. They always find a new kingdom. They always give it a new name. They always have a province, and they, they let people know Caesar is now your king. Whatever government may exist below him, ultimately, Caesar is the one who decides. And in this, Pilate asking Jesus, are you the king? Are you the king of the Jews? What power do you think you have, and are you going to cause trouble for me? There's an order and a system that works here, and I want to know if you're really my problem or not. This is Pilate's real question to Jesus. Are you my problem? I'm not a Jew. 
I'm not here to decide your religious practices and, and your, your little theocracy that you have going. I just want to know if you're really my problem. And Jesus' response is a response to that question. He says, my kingdom is not of this world. I don't rule a piece of land. I'm not looking for the throne that Herod sits on. I'm not looking for the throne that Caesar sits on. I am not looking for the kind of power that the other insurrectionists that you've had to deal with have looked for. My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. Notice here that what Jesus does, and this is really difficult sometimes to see in the English language, Jesus actually changes the phrasing here. My kingdom is not of this world. He's, he's saying it's not, it doesn't originate from here. It doesn't come from this place. It doesn't follow the systems and ideals that you would expect. It comes from outside of this world. And then he says, if my kingdom were out of this world, if it were drawn from, if, if the, the foundations of it were built in the same way, I know that, that little preposition there, of this world, seems like it's not quite that loaded, but it really is that loaded. If my kingdom came out of this world, if it derived its origins from this place, here's how it would act. They'd be storming in here with swords. Because you know, as a ruler of this world, that that's how these kingdoms work. They bust down the doors, chanting my name, crying out insurrection. That's how kingdoms of this world work. But clearly, based on your interactions with me up to this point, that's not how my kingdom works. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. So you are a problem for me. You're, you're claiming that there is a kingdom. And he says, ah, so you are a king. I'm hearing you right. I'm understanding what it is that you're telling me. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. Those words come from your mouth. For this purpose, I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate asks this question, what is truth? If you do a Google search on what is truth, there are a lot of, a lot of responses to that. Uh, most of them are from Christian publications, and most of them are going to deal with uh, this particular passage here. But some of them are from other places. You'll get the Wikipedia article that pops up and gives a very staunch definition of truth. Truth is the quality of bearing reality. Truth is the quality of 
explana- uh, explanation or, ex- or explanatory evidence. Truth is, and this is strange, one's perception of reality. Pilate says, what is truth? Now, Pilate didn't have the opportunity to go and consult Wikipedia. Pilate didn't have Webster's Dictionary to pull up. Pilate didn't have uh, all of the resources that we have nowadays. He couldn't have a uh, 2.3 second, 5 billion answer list to be able to consult. In this moment, it's just these two men discussing with one another the reality of the situation that they're facing. How it says, what is truth? You say that you're not a problem for me. That your kingdom isn't of this world, that there's not going to be an uprising here. That nobody's going to come and try and rescue you or, or lop off an ear. I'd imagine at some point Pilate has heard this story. You tell me that you're not my trouble. And I hear what you're saying, but I have to ask, is what you're saying really true? And of course, Pilate can't have the answer to that question until after the crucifixion. Because there are hours between this moment and the time where Jesus dies on the cross. And there are hours in which someone can do something to prevent what's going to happen. Of course, we, we know Jesus is going to keep it from being prevented. That's the way that Jesus works. This is what he came into the world for. And in that confession to Pilate, he again is saying, I am not trouble for you. This is what I came into the world for. This is the revelation of truth. Think about that for just a moment. Truth is not the person that storms into the gates of the city with the sword in the hand and cries out the name of their king. Truth is not the moment of insurrection against a human government. Truth is not the time and place in which people take up arms against other people for the sake of an earthly throne. Truth is when God willingly lays down his life for humanity. This is what I have come into the world for. And sometimes we still find ourselves in Pilate's place asking, what is truth? Sometimes we think that God's kingdom must be built on the back of violent insurrection and shouting and anger and all the tools and powers that the world has used to its benefit. Jesus says, this is what I have come into the world for, to show you what the kingdom really looks like, what true power really looks like. In a lot of ways, today's lesson, this passage is is exactly what last week showed us. 
That it is not the swinging of the sword that makes the church powerful. It is the laying down of our lives for the kingdom of heaven. The rejection of the systems of this world for the benefit of others. That is the truth. And sometimes we get it so, so backwards. But this is actually a callback to a moment earlier in John's gospel. I, it's not just a callback in, in like, oh, isn't this convenient that this happened to be arranged in such a way. I think, really, John has set us up to know that this is actually a point Jesus has been trying to make all along. If you go back to John, uh, John chapter 7, there's this moment where Jesus is having a conversation with a bunch of Jewish individuals who are concerned about his identity and what he's there for and what he's doing. And they're, ah, you know, we're Abraham's children. And he says, no, you're not. If you were Abraham, you would behave in the way that Abraham's children behaved. Or if you were Abraham's children, you would behave the way Abraham behaved. And he tells them, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. All of the problems that these people face, all the trial, all the difficulty, all the frustration that we face in our lives, is usually because we don't know clearly the truth that Jesus has proclaimed to Pilate on this day. That the kingdom of heaven is not in any way like the kingdoms of this world. If it were, it would be bad news for the kingdoms of this world, but it's good news for the kingdoms of this world. It's good news for those who occupy the kingdoms of this world. Means that the God of heaven has not come here to wage war against you or me, but to claim us for his own. To not put our lives at stake, but to put his life on the line for us. Are we willing to live with that truth as our truth? set aside the powers and principalities of this world so that we might bless others, be good news for them, so that we're not someone else's problem trying to get one up on them, but we are the person who will lay down our lives for our brother. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, this morning we, we see Peter standing by the charcoal fire in comfort, solitary, alone, and scared, because he knows how the world responds to insurrectionists. He doesn't want to be associated with that. God, in, in standing by the fire, he has missed the truth that Jesus was not the insurrectionist. He was all along the true king. And that real power does not look like getting your followers killed. It looks like lifting them up and laying down your life for them. 
And ironically, God, if, if we believe that you are, in fact, the king who lays down his life for his people, we become so much more willing to lay our lives down for you and for one another. Help us to know the truth that the kingdom of heaven is about a king who would give up all for his people. A king who would deny himself and take up his cross so that we might have eternal life. Help us to know that truth so we might leave the charcoal fire We might walk away from our own comfort and find ourselves boldly standing with the one who is the truth. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the end, of course, we know that Jesus is not found guilty. He's specifically found to be innocent. Ironic, given what ends up happening. And he is offered in place of a man named Barabbas. Barabbas, Barabbas is a real insurrectionist. Your Bible might call him a thief. The word thief there literally can be translated as one who fomented insurrection. And Jesus takes his place. The power of heaven is swapped for the powers of this world. And Jesus dies in the place of a man who was violent and angry and wanted things under his own terms. And maybe you are violent and angry. I don't know. Sometimes I'm violent and angry, at least in my head, usually with other drivers. Jesus wants to replace that quality in you. He wants to stand in the position that you currently are in and take the guilt from you. He wants to be the one who offers you sanctification, remission, and redemption. And maybe you are going to find yourself in a position where you say, well, I don't really understand what the kingdom of heaven looks like. I don't really understand what the truth is. If you don't understand those things, we want to sit down with you and we want to help you understand those things better. But if you do understand them today, if you're, if you're kind of grasping this idea that the kingdom of heaven is not like the kingdoms of this world, if you want to see a king who would lay down his life for you sit on the throne of your heart, you can have that opportunity. That is the kingdom that we want to be. That is the place we want to dwell in. That is the God we want to worship. And I want to encourage you this morning to to consider that, what it would mean for you to follow a God like that, to serve a king like that, to be a citizen of a kingdom like that. And let it inform every waking moment of your life. If that's what you want this morning, if there are ways that we can bless you and serve you the way that Jesus would bless you and serve you, we want to offer that to you today. I'm going to be at the back of the auditorium uh, as we continue our worship today, um, and I would be happy to visit with you. I would be happy to share with you the things that, uh, that you need to be shared with or need to be shared with you. Uh, our elders are here this morning, and they would be happy to visit with you as well, and we have some ladies this morning that would be happy to visit and pray with you if that's what you would like for them to do. Let's stand and sing.